Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so I said last week we're going to talk about your job, the place that you work. And so last week we saw that Solomon told us that God is sovereign over all things, over the time that you're born, over when you die, every single experience in life, God is um, sovereign. Now, this brings up a huge question that maybe you've asked. If God is sovereign and we believe He is, then why is there injustice in the world? Or to ask it another question, why doesn't God just end all evil and suffering right now? God is sovereign. So here's the question that a lot of people will, like especially atheists, will, will charge against Christianity. They'll say things like this. If your God is all-powerful, then He wouldn't allow suffering. Because he's, if He's powerful enough to stop it, He would stop it. And if He chooses not to stop it and He's powerful enough to stop it, then it must mean He's not loving. You ever heard that before? So God is either not powerful or He's not loving. That's what a lot of atheists will say against God. So you have to have an answer for them. And the question is, okay, their, their question is, we see evil, we see suffering, we see pain and sorrow in the world. And if your God is so big and so mighty and so strong and so loving, why doesn't He just stop it right now? That's a, that's a good question, isn't it? And that's Solomon's question. Because Solomon is going to see, there's four things he sees, so it's structured around these four, I saw, I saw, I saw. He sees four things that kind of distress him about life. And so here's his main point tonight. There's two kind of major themes going together in tonight's theme. In a cutthroat world of selfish individualism and competition, you should do two things. Enjoy your work in quiet contentment and in cooperating friendships. So we're going to talk about two important things in the life of a Christian, and that is work and friends. Important things to you guys? Work and friends. Now, let's just ask the question, do we live in a cutthroat world of selfish individualism and competition? Do we see that all around us? Okay. So nothing has changed under the sun. What they were dealing with back in the Old Testament, we deal with today. And so Solomon's going to see these things, and he's going to get disturbed about these things, and then he's going to give some answers to these things like we've seen all along. So let's read together um, Ecclesiastes 3, um, 16 through 22. Let's just read this first section together. Okay. Moreover... I saw, so here's, these, these are all structured on four things he sees. I saw, I observed, under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts 
For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and the dust to all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Okay. Observation number one. Notice what Solomon says there in verse 16. I saw injustice in the court of law. Now, you don't quite get this in your English translations, but if you go back and look at the original Hebrew and you look at the culture, most scholars believe he's talking about injustice in the courts. Now, let me ask you a question. Outside of most courthouses, either what statue or what symbol do you see outside of courts? Lady Justice. You remember Lady? You ever seen the statue? What is Lady Justice? Do you know? Does anybody remember what she looks like? She's blindfolded with scales. And what's that image supposed to let us know? Justice is blind. So what is that saying to us? In a in a perfect world, every judge, every lawsuit, every every case, there would be absolute objectivity. And justice would always be done, right? <clears throat> justice is blind. There's no discrimination. There's no, arbitra- you know, there's no arbitrary decisions. Everything is an equal playing field. And my question to you is, is that true? No. And what does Solomon see? He says, where the place where you'd expect there to be justice in the courts, there's injustice. There's, there's wickedness. And listen to what Isaiah says about this. Isaiah 5, 21 through 23. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Bribery, oppression, injustice. And so what Solomon's seeing here is something that you maybe have dealt with and so here's the question you often may deal with at times and maybe you've asked this this week maybe i don't know why does it seem like the wicked are getting away with sin and never getting punished will there ever be ultimate justice have you ever asked that question People all around me are getting away with murder. People are cheating. They're stealing. They're doing all these crazy things. And I'm towing the line and I'm trying to live a righteous life and they just seem to succeed. Why is this happening? Why am I the one that's getting punished for trying to do good? Have you ever felt that way before? Solomon feels that way. What's Solomon's answer to that? Look at verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and every work. God's going to judge someday. What do we want God to do? We want God to take justice today. God will bring justice at the end of time. It may not just be, come on in guys, it may just not be every day that can you guys, can we find a place where they can sit together? 
You'll come down front. Come on down. You're the next contestant on Ecclesiastes. <laughs> so, so um, the frustrating thing about justice in a fallen world is that we want to see justice done right now. We want people to get what's coming to them right now. Now, will God eventually judge them? Yes, but it may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may actually not be until the end of time. So let's turn to a psalm where the psalmist dealt with this same issue that Solomon's dealing with. So keep your finger in Ecclesiastes and let's turn to Psalm 73. Because Psalm 73 deals with this whole issue of injustice. Why do the wicked prosper? Uh, I'm seeing people getting away with stuff. It bothers me. There's injustice. There's wickedness. Psalm 73. It's kind of a long psalm, but let's listen to it. Let's read the whole psalm. Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. Not David, Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're in shape. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Now, let's just stop right there. Do you see people's... That's a weird imagery. Their tongue is strut. What does it mean to strut? I'm all that, okay? <laughs> but their tongue is strutting. So basically what they're doing is they're pridefully strutting their tongue against who? God. They're blaspheming God. They're speaking evil against God. And they're getting away with it, and they're arrogant, and they're acting like they're all that. And he's thinking, where's God in all of this? Because they're getting away with murder. Verse 10, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. Do you hear what he's saying? They're getting rich. They're getting famous. They're blaspheming God. They're saying, where's God? And they're not getting punished. And here I am trying to do good, and it's not really worth it. Why am I trying to keep a clear conscience? Verse 14, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Does that not sound like Solomon? <laughs> Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So what does he say? I'm getting caught up in all this injustice all around me. Why are the wicked prospering? Why is it even worth it? It was just bothering me until I went into church, until I went into the sanctuary. And then I found out their end. What's God going to do to them? Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. 
Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see the transformation of the psalmist? He's getting all caught up. Why are the wicked prosper? Why are they getting away with this? It's not worth it. He goes and spends some time with God. And what does he say? There's judgment coming. And God will guide me. And God will lead me. And God will take care of me. And God will be my portion. And God is enough for me. And I have confidence that I may not get justice in this world and it may be competitive and it may be ruthless, but God's my portion. Their end is justice. I can rest in my sovereign God. That's his answer. Now, when we go back to Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives some language here that almost seems sacrilegious, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because it almost makes it sound like he doesn't know if humans go to heaven or dogs go to heaven. or What he's saying here, look what he says there in verse 19. We're back in chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over beasts for all his vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust and to dust shall return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. What's he saying? Well, in the end, there's really no difference between us and animals. We're all going to die. Who knows if we go to heaven? All dogs go to heaven. We may go to heaven. They may go. It's not worth it. Now, some of you are like, that doesn't sound right. And it doesn't sound right. But let's ask the question. Is Solomon giving us a theology lesson based upon the rest of the Bible about what happens when a person dies? No, not here. What he's doing is he's telling us what life is like under, in a fallen world. In a dog-eat-dog world of sinners, here's his point. In a fallen world, sinners often act like animals. In a dog-eat-dog world, acting only on instinct and emotion. Animals have no concept of morality or justice. They simply act on instinct. What are some animal-type behavior you see all around you by humans? The lustful man who hooks up with as many women as he can because he sees them as pieces of meat. The dog-eat-dog world where your employee or your friend supposedly stabs you in the back and seems to have no conscience. Rioting in the streets of major U.S. cities. Hitler's systematic genocide of millions of Jews in concentration camps a serial killer who goes on a murder spree, or maybe just the bickering of your two-year-old child. Now, I'm not saying that humans are animals. That's not what he's saying. We're created in the image of God. What he's saying is, in a fallen, maddening world, when he looks around at all the competition and all the injustice, it seems like people are just acting like animals. Everybody's animalistic in the way they treat each other. And so his point is this. From a worldly perspective, when we observe the world from a worldly or secular perspective, life under the sun, there is no real difference between animals and humans. Both die, both go back to the dust. 
Now, here's the question that we've got to ask tonight because I don't want to leave you hanging with bad theology. Here's the question. Okay, what does the Bible teach about what happens to us when we die? Do you float up in wings and diapers on a play a harp on a cloud like you see on Tom and Jerry? Let's look at some scriptures here and we'll talk about what the rest of the Bible... Remember, this is poetry. He's not, he's, not, he's not teaching us theology on what happens when you die. He's looking at life in a fallen world and basically saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Everybody goes to the same place. I mean, this is, this is madness. There's no difference between humans and animals. He's being like exaggerating because he's, he's talking about life in a fallen world. But we've got the rest of the Bible. Hi, Dale. We've got the rest of the Bible and um, let's see what the rest of the Bible teaches. So Hebrews 9.27, Just as man is destined to die how many times? Once. And after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So reincarnation's out of the question. We are to die once. Okay, so what happens to you when you die if you're a Christian? Philippians 1, 21 through 24 gives some insight. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. To depart and be with Christ. So we call this the intermediate state, okay? Why is it called the intermediate state? In heaven right now, do people have bodies? No, because there hasn't been the second coming of Christ where there's the resurrection. Now, I don't know if people in heaven right now have a concept of time, but when you die, your soul immediately goes to be with Christ in heaven. Okay, that's the intermediate state, the state between the, when, this, when you die and then the resurrection. Because what's going to happen at the resurrection? Your glorified body is going to reunite with your soul and you're going to live forever in that glorified body. But right now, Solomon's question is, well, where do you go when you die? The Bible teaches that your soul goes immediately to be with Jesus. What did he say to the thief on the cross? Yeah, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Not tomorrow or sometime in the future. That same day. 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. through So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body... We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Okay, so let me give you our statement of faith that kind of sums up what happens, okay? The bodies of men after death... Return to the dust and see corruption. Okay, so where do our bodies go? Back to the ground. But their souls, which neither die nor sleep, 
We don't believe in soul sleep. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Being immortal, immediately returned to God. The souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into heaven where they are with Christ and behold the face of God in light and glory waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell where they remain in torment and utter darkness reserved to the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So we don't believe in purgatory, don't believe in reincarnation. There's either heaven or hell. God in His own time and in His own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. At the last day, the saints who are still alive shall not sleep but be changed, and the dead shall be raised up with a glorified body, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall be, by the power of Christ, raised to dishonor. The bodies of the just, by His Spirit, shall be raised unto honor, being transformed to be like His own glorious body. Now, let me just kind of explain what what we're saying there. When you die, okay, so when you die, your body goes into the ground, whether it's through burial or cremation. And I'm not going to argue which one is better or preferable. Um, Christians historically have buried because they believed in the resurrection of the dead. More pagan religions cremated, but I don't think it matters. I'm not going to argue because what's going to happen at the... I'll explain what's going to happen in the end here. Okay, so when you die, your body goes back to the the ground. Okay, so let me just ask you a question. A person who's been dead for 300 years, what's their body doing in the grave right now? It's dust. It's beyond rotting. It's dust. Okay, where does your soul go? The immaterial part of you, the person who you are without a body, where does your soul go upon death? Immediately goes to heaven, okay? So right now in heaven, there are just souls without a body waiting for the body. Now, do they understand that they're waiting? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Okay, now, at a point in time, Christ is going to come back to the earth. Those who are still alive, so let's say you're alive and you're a Christian, your body will be transformed and you'll go up. But you're not going to get to go first. Those who are in the ground, there's going to be a a miraculous transformation of that body reuniting with the soul to give you a brand new glorified body like Jesus' body when He rose from the dead. Okay, They will go first. We who are still alive will be transformed and then we'll go up. But both those who are alive and those who are dead will have a new body, a glorified body, and your dead body will be reunited with your soul in heaven in this miraculous twinkling of an eye change, and then you'll live forever with that same body. Does that make sense? Okay. That's basically what our doctrinal statement says. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole different discussion based on some interpretations of Revelation, on like rewards and crowns and things like that. That's for a different discussion. Okay. Um, but but well, we're not talking. Yeah, I'm not talking about like the whole gamut. I'm just saying the whole the, the question that we're asking is what happens to you when you die? You're when you the, the moment that you die, 
your soul goes immediately to be with Jesus in heaven, experiencing no pain, suffering, sorrow. Your body, even though your soul's left your body, your body's in the ground, it's disintegrating until the final day when Christ comes and your resurrected body reunites with your soul and then you are given your glorified body. Now, don't ask me how chemically that happens. It's a miracle. So whether you're rotting in the grave for a thousand years, whether you're cremated, or whether your ashes are spread across the ocean, or whether you were drawn and quartered, and your body parts are all over the... I mean, think about I mean, just think about all the different macabre ways to die. It doesn't matter. It's going to miraculously all come back together at the twinkling of an eye on the final day. Does that make sense? Yes, Dave. That's a great question that I don't know if the Bible... The question is, what would Solomon have known? We don't... He was the wisest man ever to live. But in redemptive history, God slowly unfolds doctrines progressively. So Abraham knew there was a... Like, let's say, for example, Abraham, when he sacrificed Isaac on Mount Moriah... He knew that there was going to be a blood sacrifice and there needed to be an atonement. And in a way, there needed to be a re- some type of resurrection because he knew if he even if he killed Isaac, he'd come back to, to, to life. He had a concept of a sacrificial death, a resurrection. Did he know that Jesus of Nazareth would literally die on a cross under Roman soldiers? I don't think he knew that. So I don't know if the Bible answers what an author knew and didn't know. At that time, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what is written is inspired and so we'd have to say that through the unfolding of all through the whole New Testament, we've got greater teachings that fill in the, the gaps. Does that, does that answer your question, yeah. Dave? Because yeah, when I read that, I just thought, well, no, I thought, should I know what they thought about? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And the question you can look at this and say, well, man, he sounds like a heretic, or he sounds like he's confused. And the question is, is Solomon giving us a theological lesson like this that the rest of the New Testament gives, or is he? poetically talking about life in a fallen world about how it just it's just cutthroat competition it doesn't really matter because people are acting like animals and we all go we're all going to die one day anyway does that make sense okay yes purgatory yes um purgatory was a belief that really there's no bible verse for purgatory the only quote-unquote textual proof you would have is in Second Maccabees, which we don't accept. It's apocryphal literature. The Catholic Church accepts what's called the Apocrypha, which is the intertestamental books that are supposed to happen between the Old and New Testament. We as Protestants don't accept that as Scripture. The New Testament Church did not accept that as Scripture. Jesus himself did not accept that as Scripture. There's not one quote in the New Testament from the Apocrypha. So the apostles in the early church did not consider it scripture. There is a verse there that seems to think that seems to teach possibly the idea of, of purgatory. Don't don't hold me to the dates because I'd have to pull up the exact, exact dates. But it wasn't until really late, later, like probably in like the fourteen or fifteen hundreds, that the Roman Catholic Church came up with the idea of purgatory. Now let's talk about indulgences because that's important for purgatory. First of all, what is purgatory? It comes from the word purgation, purge. Why do you go to purgatory? To purge your sins. You, you weren't good enough on earth to get to heaven. 
So you go to purgatory for some amount of time to hopefully pay for those sins so that you can go to heaven. Now, does anybody have a problem with that? What you're saying is that Christ's atonement didn't pay the full amount. And there's something you have to do even after death to somehow make up for what you didn't do on earth. It's a period of purging. Now, an indulgence, and actually the Catholic Church still does indulgences today. An indulgence is a payment that you can pay to the church to spring somebody out of purgatory. So, John Tetzel. John Tetzel was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to go around Europe, and he would go, and he was like a tax man, and he would go to people and say, listen, if you give me such and such amount of money and pray and give me money, your dead relative who's in purgatory can get out. And he would charge high amounts and keep the rest for himself. And the money that was left over from this was used to fund the Sistine Chapel. And there was a saying that went around Europe. When the money in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Martin Luther had a major problem with this. And this was one of the reasons why he went and nailed his 95 thesis on the door of the Wittenberg church to protest indulgences. Now, we don't have indulgences. There's our, there are indulgences today. You can go, the Roman Catholic Church still gives out indulgences. But think about the televangelists on TV that aren't Roman Catholic that say, if you give money to me, not that you'll get out of purgatory, but you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity. It's almost the same type of thing. It's a get-rich scheme to prey upon people's fears. So there's nothing Christian about it. Does that answer your question, Peggy? Now, I don't have my whole notes on purgatory. That's a lot from memory. But it's not a biblical doctrine. It's late in Roman Catholic theology, and it was really more of a, um, a way to keep people oppressed so that they can raise money. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, and in Hebrews 9 it says it's appointed for man to die once and then to face the judgment. The Bible knows of no the Bible knows of no limbo. There's either heaven or there's hell. Okay? No. No, I didn't talk these I was just no, that's a good question, Reese. I probably didn't make that clear. Yeah, I'm not a universalist. Um, in that drawing when you, I was just talking about Christians. Christians go to heaven. Where do non-Christians go? There's a little bit of debate about where non-Christians go. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Some people say they go to a place called Hades, which is kind of like a holding tank. It's still a place of torment. But it's not until the second coming where there's actually the lake of fire where they're thrown into the lake of fire. Um, so you can think of Hades as hell 1.0 and the lake of fire is hell 2.0. It doesn't really matter. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it is a place of torment. Whether it's a place, whether it's Hades and then later on the lake of fire, it's still out of the, it's, you're not in the presence of God. You are in a place where you're going to be punished and in torment consciously. And you will, get your, you will receive a resurrection too. Lost people will have a resurrected body. In that resurrected body, they will face judgment for deeds done in the body. 
And then with that body, they will be thrown into the lake of fire with that glorified. So not, really no. Yeah, there would be no reason to go to heaven to be judged. Why? Your sins were already judged by Christ on the cross. So there would be no reason for a Christian to be judged for their sins. Their sins have already been paid for. Is that? Is that okay. Yes, Bob. I've got a quick trivial. I worked for a very short time years ago for a funeral home. And after somebody dies, uh, within 24 hours, the head loses about a pound, a pound and a half. And a lot of people think it's the spirit. I have no way of knowing that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's go back. I didn't realize we we're going to go on this. You guys have some good questions. You guys ready to move back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3? Okay, so what is Solomon's conclusion to injustice? Remember, he's talking about injustice here. What's his conclusion? It's the third time he's told us this, okay? So it must be important in Ecclesiastes. In verse 22, what does he tell us? Enjoy your work. There's nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. He's already told us this. Go back to chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person than he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. This I also saw was from the hand of God. We looked at this last week. Chapter 3, verse 12. I perceive there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. That everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Three times he's told us, enjoy your work. Okay, and some of you are like, I don't like that. <laughs> Three times he's told us, enjoy your work. Okay, observation number two. We're going to move into chapter four. Um, the first observation, I saw injustice in the courts. Observation number two. Let's read verses four through, uh, chapter four, verses one through three. Again, I saw, again, that's the structure, I saw. What do you see, Solomon? All the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Okay. He sees the tears of the oppressed. Almost like these crocodile tears of people crying because they're being oppressed. And what's the issue for him? Nobody is coming to defend them. Nobody's coming to comfort them. Nobody's coming to make sure things get better for them. And Solomon says it's, it's better that they, I mean, it's better for a dead person than for a person to be alive to have to experience oppression. Now, this word's been used a lot in our culture lately. America is an oppressive culture. What is oppression? What was oppression back then? Yeah, oppression back then was actually probably slavery or forced labor. You see this in Nehemiah chapter 5. So let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5, and we're going to see Israel committing some major sins. Let me just give you a little bit of background about Nehemiah real quick. They're building the, rebuilding the wall. There's opposition. 
They're being boxed in on all sides by these military nations. These Gentile nations are coming against them. The nation of Israel can't trade. They're locked in on this embargo. It's a time of famine. In order to go build the wall, the men had to leave their farms and they left the women to do all the work so they could build the wall. And so basically, it's a time of hard work, it's a time of military oppression, and it's a time where the women are back at home working and the men are working on the wall. But here's what's going on that makes matters worse. Poor farmers were forced to sell their children into debt slavery, and their children had to work as slaves until the debt was paid off. So there was slavery going on in Israel. Now let's read this, Nehemiah chapter 5, 1 through 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers and our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards." And Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard the outcry in these words. Now, why is he angry? Yes, slavery is bad enough. Gentile nations oftentimes put Israel into slavery. Egypt, Babylon. But here you have Israel putting their fellow Israelites into slavery, which was patently against God's law. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, 32 through 34, Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up your fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you're driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. This is a covenant curse. If they disobey God in the land and do what was wicked, they would be oppressed by other nations. And God says in His law, Leviticus 19, 18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Here's what was going on in Israel during the time of Nehemiah. Oppression. There's major wickedness and sin in Israel, and it's threatening to destroy the unity of the people. There's oppression and injustice and manipulation and exploitation. And the very dangerous thing about it is that it's being tolerated by God's people. And that's why there's a great outcry. And what does Galatians say? If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. So there's oppression, injustice. What's the first thing that Solomon sees? I see injustice in the courts. But God's going to judge one day Everybody's acting like brute beast. Everybody's acting like animals. It's just a dog-eat-dog world. And then I see oppression. I see people being oppressed. I see people crying and weeping. Slavery. I see this massive oppression. If that's not bad enough, what's his third observation? Well, let's go back to Ecclesiastes. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Then I saw... 
that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is also vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil and striving after the wind. What's the third thing Solomon sees? Envy and competition in the workplace. What does he say there? I, verse 4, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. There's jealousy, there's envy, there's competition of his neighbor in the workplace. Proverbs 27, 4, Wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Question, is there ever jealousy in the workplace? Is there ever envy in the workplace? Is there cutthroat competition in the workplace? Okay. What does the Bible say about how we treat our neighbors? Because they're doing this to their neighbors. The envy of his neighbors. Um, Leviticus 19.18, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We just looked at that. And Jesus reiterates this in Matthew 22.39. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so Solomon sees these three things. I see injustice, I see oppression, and I see jealousy and envy all around me. Some, it could be in the workplace, it could be in life, but he, he kind of narrows it down to the workplace. So here's a, a really practical question. How do you as a Christian work in such a cutthroat competitive world. How do you do it? How do you survive it? And Solomon's going to give you three options. Okay? He's going to give us three options of how you can do this. And you may not understand these proverbs, so I'm going to give them to you. Verse 5, option number 1. What's option number 1? Fold your hands. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What's a folded hand? Yeah, a folded hand is a hand that can't, that's not being used. Basically, folded hands means I'm just going to opt out of working altogether and just be lazy and I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just not going to work. I'm not going to even be part of the workforce. I'm just going to fold my hands, sit back and coast and not even be a part of the process. And what does he say? That's foolish. Proverbs 6, 10 through 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. There's a command in Scripture. Paul says, listen, don't loaf. Don't be lazy. Don't live off somebody else's dime. Get up off your tuchus and work. Don't fold hands. You need to work. And so there's this weird cannibalism, like self-cannibalism. What does he say there in verse 5? The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. It's interesting Graphic imagery. So Solomon says there's option number one. If you, how you deal with competition, how you deal with cutthroat, how you deal with it, just pack up and leave and be lazy and don't work. Is that a good option? No. Okay. What's option number two? 
Option number two is two hands cupped in greed. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and suffering. What, in, in a month, there's going to be trick-or-treat. Smell my feet. Give me something good to eat. What do kids do when they come? To, well, now they have like pillowcases. <laughs> but when somebody comes up to you with two hands, what are they basically saying? Give me something. Not just one. Can you hold as much in one hand? No. Two hands. Okay. So this whole idea of two hands is this. Give me more. I want more. Bigger is better. So this imagery of two hands, the, the second option Solomon says, listen, you can just join them. Be competitive. Be cutthroat. Do whatever it takes to get ahead. Bigger is better. Um, This is what our culture values. Bigger and better. Get more, earn more, hold both hands out and get as much as you can no matter how many people you have to climb over to get it. Get those hands open and give me what's coming to me. Just join the competition. Join the cutthroat. Be worse than that. And Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Coveting. I want, I want, I want. Get my hands out. Give me what I, what's coming to me. So option number one, fold your hands. Don't even work. Option number two, join the rat race even more and just accumulate. But then here's the third option. A handful of quietness. And you never knew what a handful of quietness was. Have you ever heard that term? Better is a handful of quietness. Okay. A handful. What's one handful? Not two hands, one hand. It's a little bit smaller, but it's a handful of what? Quietness. So let's look at some Proverbs that talk about this. Proverbs fifteen sixteen. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Let that sick out there for a while. Proverbs 16.8 Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. And then Proverbs 17.1 Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So what's his point? What's a handful of quiet? What? Just what you need. Quiet contentment. Quiet contentment. Have you ever thought about that before? I'm going to do my job with quiet contentment. What does the Bible say about contentment? 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-10. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that because three weeks ago I preached on this passage of Scripture. You've already heard this once. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for He has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a good promise. Be content with what you have. Why? Because God's going to take care of you. God's not going to leave you. God's not going to forsake you. 
content. And then Paul in Philippians 4. Philippians 4.13 is often taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that mean I can scale tall buildings with a single bound? And <laughs> it's in the context of being content. Listen to the context. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. What's really the all things that we need to be strengthened with? Contentment. It's really the context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, especially being content, that contentment. So, when we think about contentment, what, what he's saying here, and we can go back for the sake of time, we may not do that. You can go back and read Matthew chapter 6, where it talks about God will take care of you today. Seek first his kingdom and, he'll, and all these things will be added to you. But here's his point. In a fallen world, you will see injustice. That's the first thing he saw. Oppression, second thing he saw. And envy, the third thing he saw, all around you, especially at work. As a Christian, you should enjoy your work with quiet contentment and your Heavenly Father will provide for your every need. Now that's a message that I don't know if we, we ever hear. Quiet contentment. Let's, let's talk about that for a little bit. How do you respond to quiet contentment? Does it make sense or is it foreign? <coughs> Excuse me. doesn't mean that you're a doormat and you let people walk all over you and you, you let people take advantage of you. Is that what he's saying? No. no. So I want you to think about this. This may be new stuff, and I, don't, and I can't make this decision for you because I don't know where you work, and all, all of you work in different situations and different contexts, and some of you are retired, and some of you are stay-at-home moms, and all of you have different places you work. The question is, how do you personally work with quiet contentment? A handful of quiet. How do you do that? And I can't answer that for you. That's something you've got to pray about and ask the Lord to, to show you what that would look like. Because some of your work environments may be more hostile than others. <laughs> Maybe harder to work with quiet contentment. Okay. So I think it yeah. goes back to um, a friend of mine uh, said it one day, and it kind of put, put it in perspective for me. He was, you know, he asked God for a job, and we were both we ended up at the same place working together. And he goes, Yeah, how bad is it when I complain about that? I really believe that God gave him that job, and so I can't complain about my job. I need to be content. Yeah, yeah. I think that's kind of maybe if we really truly believe that God is in control of all the circumstances around us, mm-hmm. then when we start complaining, we're really saying, you know, God, you're not doing such a good job. Yeah, and that really goes back to what he said at the very beginning: was that God is sovereign over everything, <coughs> even your job. And if God is sovereign over your job, and you're experiencing um, strife, difficulty. You're there for a purpose. It's where you need to be. 
doesn't mean that you never stay, change jobs or I'm not saying that you're like stuck in the same job forever, but, but God has you there and he wants you to quietly, contentedly rely upon him to provide for your needs as opposed to folding your hands and not doing anything or joining the rat race and grabbing everything. And so I think each of us needs to figure out what that balance, what that is in our own particular jobs. Any other questions on this before we move on to the last observation? Okay. Observation number four. He's switching gears a little bit here away from work to a different topic, but I think it's somewhat similar. Solomon saw the futility of rugged individualism. Now, what is rugged individualism? That's a term we kind of throw around in our culture. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody else. I don't need any friends. I don't need any partners. I can do this. I don't need help. Thank you very much. And let's see this unfold. So let's read chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person has no other. Literally second. One person has no second either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to one who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not easily broken, or not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and striving after the wind. The first thing he sees here, if you look at verses 7 and 8, is that he sees something very meaningless. He sees a solitary individual that's so wrapped up in consumerism that he or she has no second or partner or companion or friend. This person has cut themselves off from all meaningful relationships. And in this situation, it's a man who doesn't have a brother or a son. Now, if he had a brother or son, what could he do with his inheritance? He could at least, after he dies, give it off to his son, give it off to his brother. He's working, all, he's working really hard to leave something for somebody. And then he realizes what? There's nobody to leave anything to. I just want to keep getting more rich and more rich and more rich. This, just As I read this this week, it reminded me of Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, in Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, I work and I want, and, and he cuts off all human relationships. So this, this first person he sees is this, in a man here probably, but, you know, man or woman, that you're so wrapped up in getting riches, consumerism, that you've cut off all meaningful human relationships. You have no second, literally. You have no friend. You have no partner. You have no companion. You have no, no meaningful human relationships. You're a solitary, rugged, individualistic pers- person. And what does he say about that? 
at the end of verse 8. This is vanity in an unhappy business. What's the word vanity? It's a repeated word throughout Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, vapid, absurd, useless, futile, frustrating. It's unhappy. Yes, it would be. So Solomon's going to give a proverb about friendship. What's he say? Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. We are not meant to live in rugged isolationism. God created us for friendships. Now, earlier, what did he say about money and riches? Two hands are not good when it comes to money and riches, right? But when it comes to friendships, two is better than one. Earlier, it was one hand when it comes to riches, quiet hand of contentment. Now he's saying two is better than one. So he's going to give three illustrations about friendship from traveling in the ancient world, traveling in the deserts and mountains of the ancient Near East. Now, you know, just think about ancient world. You're traveling at night. There's cliffs and there's ravines and there's valleys. And so the first one, example number one, he says, is falling into a ravine or off a cliff. What does he say there? Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who's alone when he falls and has no one to lift him up. There's no flashlights back then. There's no GPS. If you're walking by yourself through the mountains, the ravines, and you fall into a pit, you may not be able to get yourself out. And I told that dumb story a few months ago about how I climbed up the mountain on senior skip day as a dumb student and hiked up the mountain with no flashlight and got stuck in the snow and couldn't get out, and I heard the bear noise, all that kind of, you guys remember that story? Some of you are like, I don't remember that story. And I was dumb and stupid. And, you know, that's his point here. You could fall into a pit. You could, like, slip and fall off the edge of a cliff. It's not wise for you to be traveling alone at night in the ancient Near East. So that's example number one, why it's better to have a companion just, just for basically travel. Example number two, keeping warm at night. Again, verse 11, if two lie together, they can keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? There were no sleeping bags or tents back then. You wrapped your tunic around you, and you, that's all you had. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, Dave, about India. Okay, so we were in India back in August, and we were in the church. that was It was kind of cold at night because it was cut up in the mountains. We were all sleeping in tents. And you and Jan were together. You got, you got to share a tent with your wife. I just had my own little pup tent. But how did the Indians sleep? They did not sleep. How did the Indians sleep? They slept all together. Like the women and men were separate, but they're all lined up next to each other. It was very interesting. They did not have tents, and they, and they had very minimal blankets. The women were on one side, the men were on their side, but they were as close as they could be to each other to keep themselves warm. And all they had was one blanket and they slept flat on the floor like we all slept on air mattresses (laughs) and i have to tell you this i am so glad i brought my ipod with headphones because there's a lot of snoring going on (laughs) between indians over here and doug riemenschneider over here and i probably snored too myself but i was like i got i put my noisemaker app on like white noise it was good anyway the the picture here is keeping warm at night Now, the third image here is fighting off bandits. Verse 12, 
And though a man might prevail against one who's alone, two will withstand him. Okay, do you remember the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, that story? What happened to the guy? He got beat up by bandits. So they were traveling. So if you were traveling by yourself, three things could happen to you. One, you could fall off a cliff and nobody would know. You could freeze to death at night or you could get beat up by a robber if you were by yourself. So just practically, he's Solomon saying, it's just practically better for you to travel with a friend. And then, so what have we gone from? We've gone from one, one solitary man to two and then what's, this, what's the ending proverb? What does he say there? What's the pr- concluding proverb? A threefold cord is not easily broken. It's gone from one to two, now to three. What's a threefold cord? Three cords that are intertwined. What? Yeah, it could be God walking beside you. But just practically, if you have one cord, how could, it can easily snap, right? You guys have seen cords, twine, rope. If it's wrapped together, it's stronger. And so the image is, now there's been some fanciful interpretations of this by the early church fathers who were allegories. They were saying, this represents the Trinity. Well, maybe. I don't know if Solomon, like you said, I don't know if Solomon had a full understanding of the Trinity. His point is this. When you have friends, when you have close companions, it makes for security it helps, it brings stability, it helps you be in a position where it's not, you're not broken. You're not, you're not vulnerable. You're helped. You're encouraged. Okay? Now he's going to move to a story that it took me a while to figure out what he was talking about here. A story of two kings. Two kings. The first king in this story, in verses 13 through 16, is an old and foolish king who cut off all his advisors and made decisions in rugged isolationism. What does it say there? Better was a poor and wise young man than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. He was an old foolish king who said, I don't, wanna, I don't, wanna, I don't need your advice. I don't need advisors. I don't need counselors. I'm going to make decisions on my own. I'm going to isolate myself. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. So the old man says, I'm old. I've got it taken care of. I'm going to do this thing by myself. I don't need any advisors. I don't need any counselors. And Solomon says he's foolish. He's cut himself off from advisors. He's cut himself off from relationships. He's going it alone. He's foolish. But then there's a young king that takes his place. He rose to power and had the popularity at everyone at first. Now, think about in Bible history, who was a king who rose from prison to power and was the most popular person in the land? Joseph. You remember Joseph? Joseph was in slavery. God miraculously worked for him to be the second in command to the Pharaoh. And during a time of of famine, um, Genesis chapter 41, 57 says, All the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe all over the earth. Joseph was very, very popular. He had a lot of people that were listening to him. But here's the story of this guy. This young king was popular at first, but then 
people kind of turned their back on him and said, we don't want to listen to you anymore. Look at what happens there. Verse 14, For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Everybody was coming to him. He was popular. He was, he was charismatic. Everybody was coming to him. Yet, those who came later will not rejoice in him. So what I think he's saying here is that he had shallow friends. He may have had popularity and a lot of people around him, but they weren't true friends. And what happened to Joseph? Well, Joseph died. And Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. How popularity changes things. Jesus, on Palm Sunday, they were crying out what? Hosanna. And on Friday, they were saying, crucify him. And so here's what you see. Three types of people in this last section. You have the workaholic miser who cuts off all human relationships to pursue riches. It's about me, about my investments, about consumption. I don't need human relationships. I'm this workaholic. It's all about me and what I can accumulate. I don't need friends. Just give me my job. you got a foolish king who had friends but says, you know what, I'm going to cut off all advice. I'm going to make decisions in isolation. I'm not going to have any friends around me. I'm going to purposely choose to just get rid of my friends so that I can go it alone. I can do this thing alone. Then you had the young man... Whoops. You had a young and popular king who had many friends and followers at first, but they proved to be shallow in fair weather. And what does Solomon conclude with? This is vanity. Striving after the wind. So God has made us for lasting and deep friendships. Now, I'm going to preach here in just a moment. One of the greatest concerns I have in our church right now, and I've had this for, I think every church deals with this, is that there's a lot of people connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church who are not developing relationships and they're living in rugged isolationism. They'll come in on a Sunday morning, they will sit, they'll watch the show, and they will leave and they will make no human contact with anybody. They won't get involved. And that is not the way that God has designed us to live. The church was not meant to be a bunch of individuals showing up for a Sunday morning service and then going about our own business. What was, what's the purpose of the church? So let's, let's just spend the last few minutes we have here. How is God designed for us to live in community and companionship and friendship within the church? Well, we can look at the early church. Acts 2, 44-45, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, obviously, this is not forced communism where everybody, you know, this was voluntary giving up of their property and giving up of their goods to meet the needs of the people together. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If a church is functioning the way it should be functioning, there should be no needs in the church. There should not be one needy person in the church. But what's the problem? I can tell you what it is, but I want to hear what you guys... What's the problem? Okay. What, what was that? 
Okay, so on one side, we're selfish. On the other side, you don't know there's a need. You don't know there's a need. Okay, so you have two, two things working against each other. I don't know there's a need, and I'm selfish that I don't want to meet a need. Well, why don't you know there's a need? Because people may have pride or they may not share. Or like my favorite one is, well, Pastor, why didn't you visit me in the hospital? I was on Facebook. <laughs> well, I don't sit there all day and read everybody's Facebook feed. You know, you could text me. You can call the church office. I just, you know, I'm sorry I didn't show up at your, at your, at your, at your surgery. I didn't, I didn't look at your Facebook feed. Um, and the people get mad if their needs aren't met. So how do you, so if we're to be a congregation that meets each other's needs, what does that mean? That means we have to know each other to the extent where we can actually have the walls of pride come down to say, I have a need, and then have the generosity to share the need, I mean, and to meet that need. Do you understand what I'm saying? But I think in our culture, what, why are we so individualistic? Especially out here in northeastern Colorado, what's the mantra? Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. This is farming territory. These are, you know, you guys, I didn't grow up here, but I'll say you guys. I'm one of you guys now. But um, th- this whole idea of I can do it myself. I don't need help. I'm too prideful to ask. But then if nobody comes and helps me, I'll be bitter about it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm being kind of facetious about this. Nobody helped me. Well, you didn't ask. I don't need any help, but nobody helped me. So you understand what I'm saying? So... I think that there needs to be a culture in church life where we have the freedom to ask if we have needs, to share needs, to share. And that's why being a part of a smaller group is so important. Uh, A growth group, a small group is so important. Um, Philippians 2, um, 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's just another scripture that teaches us. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And then we'll have some time for discussion here. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and following. And Paul's talking about the body of Christ here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? That's a weird image. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose, If all were a single member, where would be the body? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You see Paul's argument there? Need each other. You can't go it alone. You need to be working in our areas of giftedness. You need to love one another. You need to rejoice with one another. Uh, cry with one another, be in each other's lives, uh, live. And, and, and let me just ask you guys a question. Do you think for the most part, most Americans are lonely? Okay. Why? They choose to be? Okay. Okay. So fear, maybe fear of, I'm not an extrovert. I don't, I don't want to take the energy or effort to go meet other people. Okay, busyness. We're busy. We're fearful. We don't want to take risks. What are some other reasons why you think people are lonely? Technology? technology? From the younger generation back there. <laughs> what do you mean by technology? Just Yeah. It's easier, easier to have a virtual relationship than a real relationship. Yeah, I was. Somebody told me one time they were sitting in a ho- in an airport, and all these people were like this group of youth were all together, and instead of talking to each other, they're all texting each other when they're like right there. But that's just the way they communicate, what for right or for wrong. So technology, busyness, fear. Maybe you've been burned or rejected in the past, and you don't want to put yourself out there again. Past issues. Um, Okay, unmet expectations. They, I mean, if I reach out and be a friend, then they may want me to be like their best friend and do everything with them. And, you know, I just wanted to go to coffee maybe once a month, but they want you know, everything, you know. The energy, it could be like, man, this is going to be a lot of emotional energy I'm going to have to expend. Drama. Drama. Yeah. There's a, okay. Being pulled into the drama. Okay. Okay. Now, those are real issues. But is it right? Okay. So the question then becomes, how do we... Well, let me just give you the final thought and then we'll discuss. So here's the final... I'm going to just repeat what we've looked at tonight. This is Solomon's point in a a sentence. In a cutthroat world of selfish individualism and competition, you should enjoy your work in quiet contentment and in cooperating friendships. Quiet contentment, cooperating friendships. Two big things. Have good, solid friends that can support you and work in quiet contentment in the midst of all the chaos that's going around. That's basically what Solomon says. So let's open this up in the last few minutes for questions or comments or things that you guys want to interact with the text or things you thought about, questions. Yeah. You can like pinpoint something that's going on now. Right. That's why there's nothing new under the sun, he says. There's nothing new. It's it's the same things. Yeah. So
So how do we remedy the loneliness? Yeah, it's it's a two way. It's it's really difficult in church life because, you know, you, it's yeah, it's a relationship that takes two. I mean, you can reach out to someone and reach out to someone, but if they're not going to reciprocate, you only do so much until you realize that okay, this is maybe they're choosing not to to, to come the rest of the way. Um, I just I guess I just fear like. I don't know. I just see, like, I guess maybe the times we've gone to India, like other parts of the world are so a whole lot more communal and relationship-oriented than Americans are. Everything's built around relationships. We're a time-bound culture. They're a relationship-bound culture. So here's, what, let me ask you a question. What would be more rude to you? If you have an appointment with somebody at 10 o'clock and you meet a friend on the way and talk to that friend for an hour and an hour late for your appointment, which, what's ruder, being late for the appointment or not talking to your friend? In America, what is it? Being late. In their culture, it's rude not to spend the time talking to that person. If it takes an hour to do it, you do it because the relationship's more important than the appointment. Now, that goes against the grain of everything that we're wired to do. And I'm not saying we change our culture, but I'm just saying in some other cultures, the relationship trumps the task. I think in Americans, we're very task-oriented. Got to get the task done. Other cultures are more relationship-oriented. And so I think we just need to realize that and try to find ways to, um, to, to understand that you know, relationships are very, very important, especially in the life of a church. Yes, Gene, Junior. You were saying you're going, you, were going, you went to Asia and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Did, um, did they have like co- clocks and stuff like that? Or did they oh, yeah, them? they have cell phones, but like they <laughs> call it, they call it Indian time. So like we're gonna, we're gonna, the church is going to start at 10. Dave, what does that mean? 11. We're going to leave it. We're going to we're going to meet at the hotel and we're going to get on the auto rickshaws at 9. Well, that means maybe 10. So, like if you were to go on a mission trip and I and like, okay, we're leaving at 9 and you're all ready to go, we'd have to like indoctrinate you and say, "Now wait a minute. You're going to be sitting and waiting for a long time because there's a lot of, there's just not that much of a But then when it's time to go, it's time to go and then everything gets all stressful. So, um yeah, just different cultures It's not that those things aren't important; they just don't have the same place. Yeah, and, value. And yeah, so I mean, you see it everywhere. I mean, you see it in, um, like, I mean, even the three times we've been there, seeing the same scenes in the same places, you see the same building under construction that you've seen for the last six yeah, years. You remember that? <laughs> that <laughs> building still under construction. And it's not like it's stopped. It's just, it just it takes that, that long. That's, you know, we're working today and. Maybe next week, and you know, but and they still use primitive <laughs> it's shovels. Not, it's it's so, so much different than, than our culture that just says, "Yeah, we're going to do this. This is the time yeah. frame, and it's going to be done here." And that, yeah, the, to them, that it's not, you know, it's, yeah, it's totally different. That's getting close. That's getting close. <laughs> I was up at Children's Hospital a couple weeks ago, with Zach. Well, I would say that you can't force relationships. 
but there are mechanisms in the church life to get those relationships. If all you do is come to Sunday morning and don't get involved in a group, there's really no way. Okay, let's just be real honest. During the welcome to worshipers, when I stand up and say, let's greet each other in the Lord, how meaningful can you have a relationship with people? What do you normally do? It's all chaotic and everybody shakes hands and you try to get as many people as you can and then you go back and sit down. How do you, how, like during the welcome to worshipers, do, do, how often do you go up to somebody and say, you know what, I have this major need, would you pray for me and I'm dealing with something really, do you have the time to do that? In a group, can you do that? Once you get comfortable with those people, can you say, here's what I'm struggling with, here's my prayer request, here's how you can help me. That takes some risks because you have to make yourself vulnerable. But um, I would say this, you can risk, how, how do I want to say this? I think the best way to say it. It's, it's, in the long run, it will be better for your soul to take a risk and put yourself out there and have friends that care for you than to never take the risk and be in isolation. Even if you get burned, it may hurt. But I think in the long run, if you never take a risk and you never put yourself out there, you're just always going to be closing up those walls and never putting yourself in a position to be receiving care. Does that make sense? Yeah, Carrie, go ahead. Can I say, too, to the people that, like, do reach out and maybe they aren't getting a response right then or when they're wanting one, it, sometimes it can take, like, six months or yeah. a little bit of time, but I think it's better than yeah. what you're saying. I don't think you'll regret it if you yeah. keep reaching out when it's time for that person. Yeah. They might yeah. come back around and yeah. to get discouraged. Yeah, because some people, like, when they're being reached out to, that they don't want to be reached out to at that moment, but they may really need help. And so don't give up. You may have to go back some more times and be, be more gentle. And uh, Yeah, it, it's difficult because we're talking about relationships. It's not easy. If relationships, like it'd be easy if a pastor, if all I had to do was preach. That'd be so awesome. <laughs> I'm just going to preach and that's all I'm going to do. No counseling, no relationships. I'm just, I'm joking with you. But I mean, wouldn't that be like, it'd be so nice if I could like go to work and not have any people there. Most of you say that. If I could just do my job with no people. Some people are like that. But everything about life is wrapped up in relationships. Relationships at work, relationships at church, relationships at home. How do you deal with these relationships? So 